Good morning. It's a privilege to be able to introduce our guest this morning, not to be confused with the former NFL linebacker, Bill Romanowski, is a nationally recognized scholar and award-winning commentator on the intersection of religion and popular culture. He's professor of communication arts and sciences at Calvin College, where he teaches courses in film and media studies. He describes himself as a working class kid who got a PhD. He grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania playing football and rock and roll. He earned an undergraduate degree in literature, a master's degree in English, and a PhD in American culture studies. He's written numerous books, has been invited to speak in venues around the globe, and received numerous awards. His latest book, Reforming Hollywood, How American Protestants Fought for Freedom at the Movies, won the Religious Communication Association Book of the Year Award in 2013, and received the President's Author Series Award from this very institution, Indiana Wesleyan, in 2013. Since 1988, Bill and his family have lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he, all right, lots of Michigan folks, where he now watches football and listens to rock music. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bill Romanowski. I'm on the tail end of a cold, and so if my voice sounds a little ragged, I apologize for that. It's a great pleasure to be here with you this morning. I imagine some of you have seen the Academy Award winning film, Gladiator. When it came out, my friend Paul, who loves action adventure films, arranged for, for a group, the boys, to go to a, a, a 10 o'clock showing on Wednesday evening. And the reason you'd go at 10 o'clock on Wednesday night is because he would assume nobody else would be in the theater. Paul's a little ADD. He can't stand when people are talking in the theater around him, okay? So we walk into, this, into the theater, and there were just a couple people scattered throughout. Perfect. We go, he gets us the right seats, perfect distance from the screen, maximize the surround sound effect. He was really excited about the film. Trailers start to roll and four teenage girls come into the theater. And Paul looked at them, and I thought, please don't sit anywhere near us. They sat right behind us and a little bit to the left. They're giggling and talking during the trailers. Paul is throwing them the dirtiest looks. They're paying no attention. The movie gets started. They haven't quite settled down. You could just see him burning up. He gets up, stormed out the row, went down about eight or 10 rows, and put himself right down in the middle of the screen. So the whole time I'm watching this movie, The Gladiator, I can see Paul. He was really absorbed in the film. And then at the end, when Maximus, the hero, lies there dead in the dust of the Roman Colosseum, the Roman senator asks a question, who will carry this soldier? Paul put his hand up. <laughs> now, has something like that ever happened to you? You're so involved in the movie that when it ends, the credits start to roll and you just sit there not wanting to leave the world of that film. 
Watching a movie involves a willing suspension of our disbelief. We put aside for a time the fact that we are sitting in rows with popcorn and drink in hand and staring at images that are projected on a screen. And we allow those projections to take us to another world. One film theorist describes the screen on which the world of a film is projected as a kind of barrier. The screen separates us from the world that the film portrays, and it makes us invisible in that world. And so characters don't seem to be aware that we're watching their every move very closely. The screen also screens the filmic world from the audience. And so we might find ourselves in the middle of an intergalactic battle to the finish with the Death Star, but we never have to worry about getting hit by a blaster or that the evil Darth Vader is going to turn and come after us. But in another sense, the screen is not so much a surface as it becomes a space. And the cinema can transport its audience elsewhere. Movies can take us shark hunting with Chief Brody or exploring the globe with Indiana Jones. We are made privy to the prayers of a conflicted Pentecostal preacher or the quiet conversation of friends and lovers. We can sit cinematic ringside during a bout for the heavyweight championship of the world or witness the bloody battle at Omaha Beach during World War II. The Matrix invites us into a futuristic world where people are computer-simulated clones unaware that they are managed by super-intelligent humanoid machines. It's not hard to see why movies are talked about as being magical and dreamlike. Now, I'm imagine, I, I assume you've all seen a 3D film, right? Give me some non-verbals here. Okay, yeah. It used to be, now you can see them in IMAX and all films sometimes come out in 2 and 3D. But it used to be if you wanted to see the 3D film, you had to go to a special presentation. And some of the most spectacular ones they have at the theme parks, like at Universal or the Disney theme park. And one of my favorite ones is down at, at Disney. They have one called Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. You know, I'm not even sure if it's still playing. But in it, Rick Moranis, play off of the film, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, Rick Moranis plays this absent-minded uh, inventor. And he, he comes out in this film, and he's, he's got this hovercraft, okay? Now, when you go to a 3D film, you know that you're going to a 3D film. And lest you forget, you have to wear those wacky kind of plastic glasses to get the 3D effect, right? So you know you're in a 3D film. And at, the, at this film, they always try to have some spectacular 3D effect. And so Rick Moranis is, comes in on this hovercraft he's got. And at the very beginning of the film, he flies the hovercraft out, and it appears to be flying out over the audience. And do you know what members of the audience do? That's right. They reach up and try to touch it. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. They have got to know that that is just an image, that it is not physically there to be touched, and yet they can't resist trying. See, and I think it, it goes to this idea of how much we want to cross over that threshold and cross into the world of the film. A good number of you see The Passion of the Christ? When The Passion of the Christ was playing in theaters, i got to hit the clicker, there we go. Um, I was lecturing at a college up in Canada for several days, and I followed a discussion thread in one of the newspapers there. 
Responding to an earlier letter, one writer wrote, and I'm going to read this to you. <clears throat> he says, among that guy's complaints with Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is that it is historically dubious. But how could any movie about any portion of the life of Jesus be anything but historically dubious when all the Christian Gospels contain descriptions of events that could never have happened? One example among many. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus turns water into wine. Wine contains carbon atoms and water does not. To produce carbon atoms from the oxygen atoms in water, Jesus would have had to split two protons from each oxygen atom. Doing this to the oxygen atoms in a gallon of water could have caused an atomic explosion that would have destroyed most of Roman held Judea. Okay. The next day, another reader responds to that letter. And he writes, I fail to see why this guy is so dubious about Christ's ability to change water into wine. That has always been one of my favorite miracles, and recalling it is especially useful when confronting teetotaling fundamentalists. <laughs> I also routinely transform fine wines into unpotable water, he wrote. Occasionally I concede, I have some regrets about doing so the morning after, but I have yet to precipitate an atomic explosion. The passion of the Christ drew Hollywood's attention to those consumers who were already spending hundreds of millions of dollars on religious books and music. Movie makers now wanted a piece of the action. Hollywood marketing research, however, showed that religious and non-religious people were indistinguishable when it came to movies. Not surprisingly, film producers assumed churchgoers would simply turn out for standard Hollywood fare. According to a report in the New York Times, all filmmakers had to do was to clean up their movies a bit by sanding the edges off dialogue that might offend churchgoers. Observing Hollywood's foray into the church market, Time Magazine's film critic Richard Corliss wrote, and I'm quoting him here, Hollywood doesn't want to make, excuse me, Hollywood doesn't necessarily want to make Christian movies. It wants to make movies that Christians think are Christian. Unfortunately, the label Christian is attached now to movies rated PG and attuned to the level of children or to those with explicitly religious content like the recent Noah or Son of God. And the church is being exploited as a market for these family-friendly films. Now, according to the Motion Picture Association of America, the film industry is driven by frequent moviegoers who go to the cinema at least once a month. Frequent moviegoers account for only 11% of the U.S. Canadian population but they purchase 50% of all movie tickets. 11% of the population purchases 50% of all movie tickets. And who are the most frequent moviegoers? 
people 12 to 24 years old. They represent 18% of the population, but they make up 35% of frequent moviegoers, and they purchase 30% of all the movie tickets that are sold. In other words, your age demographic largely drives the music or the, the movie business. The typical American watches on average 45 movies a year at theaters, on cable, DVD, or online streaming. Whether they sense the influence of film or not, a recent Barna Group report notes, movies continue to power the cultural and moral imagination of adults simply by virtue of the hundreds of hours they spend watching such fare. Indeed, according to this survey, 22% of Protestants and 17% of evangelical Christians reported having seen a movie that made them think seriously about their religion or their spirituality. The question is no longer whether Christians should engage the cinema, but only how can we be faithful in doing so. And addressing that issue has animated much of my academic career. I find a starting point for cultivating a Christian approach in Psalm 119, and I want to read to you three verses, starting at verse 89. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth, and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. For all things serve you. Now, I understand from my colleagues in religion that the Hebrew word things has a very comprehensive meaning referring to, well, everything, okay? So my way of thinking about film starts with a fundamental question. How does this thing serve? What is this thing exactly? And to be more specific, what role might this thing, the cinema, play in serving in God's creation? So that's how I start thinking about, as a Christian, about the cinema. Movies are one way that we talk about reality, about the issues that preoccupy us and the events that influence our world. And the role that the cinema plays in helping people imagine the world has long been and continues to be an issue of lively concern in the church and beyond. It flares up periodically in a range of concerns. Some, I suppose, you might deem more or less, uh, of more or less importance, okay? So there were charges, for example, that a movie about the Muppets reuniting to save their old theater from a greedy oil tycoon was really thinly disguised communist propaganda aimed at elementary school children. And concerned viewers apparently can't decide whether Frozen is Christian-themed, a coming-out film, or about climate change. <laughs> and perhaps more seriously, commentators debated about how, how historically accurate Argo or Lincoln are or what to make of Zero Dark Thirty's handling of human torture. Now, for myself, I can say that watching Boys in the Hood deepened my awareness of my white privilege. 
while at the same time offering an alternative perspective on our common pursuit of the American dream. And Toy Story 3 prepped me emotionally as I became an empty nester in the summer of 2010 when that movie was released. And I want you to know I stood in the lobby for 15 minutes and bawled my eyes out after that film. <laughs> now, I've also learned that you need to generate 1.21 gigawatts of electricity to power the flux capacitor that makes time travel possible in Back to the Future. And if you saw Ghostbusters, you know that if you cross the proton streams that polarize the negatively charged energy of a ghost, all life as we know it will stop instantaneously and every molecule in your body will explode at the speed of light. Something like changing water into wine, I imagine, you know? <clears throat> All right, permit me a personal story, though. It's almost three years ago now that my mother died. She, she was 86 years old, and she, she lived a full life. And just weeks before she died, we had an occasion to have a poignant conversation. And as it turned out, it was the last time I ever spoke with her. And during that conversation, we, we said whatever failings we'd had were, were, were long ago forgiven. And we knew how deeply we loved each other. And we realized, and, and we sort of laughed about it, that there was really nothing more we ever really needed to say. Months after my mother died, I was watching a German film called Mostly Martha. And Martha is a master chef who is consumed with her craft. And when her sister is killed in a car accident, Martha has to care for her or orphaned niece. Both are dealing with suppressed grief. And in one scene, the restaurant kitchen is just bustling with activity. And while Martha's going around doing all sorts of things, we hear her internal reflections in a voiceover. And I, I'm going to read that dialogue to you. Some people kill a lobster by throwing it in boiling water. But by now, everyone should know that for the animal, it is the most agonizing death because it takes so long for it to die. The best way to kill a lobster is with a well-placed stab in the neck. It's the quickest. The character Martha is using a cooking metaphor to explain what grieving is like. And I, I'd seen that film several times before, but this time after my mother's death, as I listened to those lines of dialogue, I had one of those aha moments. See, someone else, a screenwriter in another country, apparently shared and was expressing something of the experience that I was having. And it made me realize that I would rather that grief were a quick stab, a wound that would just heal with time. And instead, I continue to experience grief 
as an enduring sadness that surfaces inexplicably at the strangest moments and can make all the emotions you have inside well up to the surface. And my encounter with that movie made me realize that I am not alone in those feelings, that I am not alone in dealing with one of the deepest emotional struggles of the human spirit, the loss of someone that you love dearly. And like all good storytelling, a movie can be a study of life itself. And you see, whatever potential for service the cinema has, has <clears throat> should be cultivated, and it should be cultivated by Christians out of love for God and our neighbor. See, if we fail to take the cinema seriously, we risk affirming prevailing and popular attitudes about movies that they're just mere entertainment that we don't really need to think about. Instead, we should be learning how to benefit as Christians from the role that movies play in the expansion of human knowledge and in the understanding of the affairs of life. Now, how can Christian colleges take up this task? Well, one concrete initiative is to raise the level of film discrimination among Christian college students who are largely the driving force in the, uh, uh, in the, in the movie industry to help them to become informed and appreciative viewers. And by that, I mean to better enjoy film with a richer understanding of how it serves to shape our identities and our cultural conversation. Another is to encourage aspiring movie makers develop creative instincts and understand how to keep those instincts in tune with their faith perspective. See, might, might we begin to cultivate a tradition of filmmaking that is characteristically Christian, not by being preachy or sentimental, but instead artistically delightful and expressive of a Christian perspective on the emotional and spiritual struggles of life. And what if there were, existed an appreciative audience to provide box office support for even more of the same? You see, the larger purpose in our postmodern world is to, to foster a pluralistic cinema with room for Christian perspectives on the universal search for meaning in God's world. Protesting objectionable, objectionable material is not, an, an, is not enough. As a religious drama scholar once put it, we cannot cut the devil out of a picture with a pair of scissors. Instead, we should praise and buy tickets for movies that offer an honest portrayal of the human dilemma and deepen our understanding of life. And at the same time, be critically discerning of a steady diet of American movies that often exalt self-interest as the supreme human value, that glorify violent solutions to problems, that make finding the perfect mate one's primary vocation and highest destiny, and offer material prosperity as the most reliable source of meaning and satisfaction in life. Such films represent an American value system 
that arguably runs against the grain of the Judeo-Christian tradition with its centrality on loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, some of you might interpret the way I talk about the cinema as a license to see anything and everything. And that is not at all what I, what I am suggesting. Instead, I want to encourage you to judge a movie and make decisions about the kinds of movies that you see by asking this, is it good drama? Does it contain crisp dialogue, interesting characters, making important choices, a worthwhile theme, well-structured narrative with convincing suspense and conflict and resolution? How true to life or how honest is the movie's treatment? See, that I think is a good beginning at being faithful film producers and viewers and critics entrusted by God with this thing, this powerful means of communication. I want to conclude by reading from Colossians 1, starting at the 15th verse. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And that includes motion pictures. So be it. Amen.